the imagination through the years so much as Herman Melville's immortal story of Captain Ahab, who lost his very soul in the bitterness of vengeance against the great white whale, Moby Dick. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast dancing to disco with Gloria Graham. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my master and commander, Joe Reed. Ah, uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, You are the master and commander. I am the far side of the world. <laughs> Very good. I was wondering where you were going to pull what of the what of the many epithets that Ahab uh, hurls at uh, the mighty whale to refer to me. So, I'll take master and commander. I'll take burly Russell Crowe. That's fine. I'll deal with Listen, that. Listen, I think listeners should be expecting if they are not already lots of boat references, boat jokes. Sure. Uh waterlogged um harpoon harpoon humor does that exist harpoon humor something harpooner oh yes didn't work it doesn't work it's fine midway midway through this episode joe and i are going to play a little duet on that is true violin (laughs) yeah an old shanty for uh for all you to enjoy yes exactly okay since the shanties have been brought up there are a lot like this is i wouldn't say borderline musical but it was a lot more shanty music than I was expecting, and a lot more old timey religious music than I was yeah. expecting. Yeah, 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 yeah. You get a full. It almost feels like you know how Sleeping Beauty is like fifteen minutes of music montage before any story happens. That's true. It felt like that. Yeah. Um, we'll get into it. Different times. Different times. Those seafaring uh, people. Do you feel like? Go ahead. I, I, I do feel like. If you're going to go to sea, that's where you should be least surprised to hear a shanty. You should be, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's it's just like all that time, all that space, like nothing to do. And all of a sudden, it's just like then all of a sudden, the, the spirit moves ye um, uh, somehow. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The water spirit. Right. Right. And by that, you mean Trish, I imagine. Yes, Trish. Moby Dick is Trish. It is Trish if you have uh if you have wronged Trish. Right. Right. Trish yeah. becomes a white whale. Eventual white um, whale. Yeah. Yeah. That what if they made a new version of this as a movie and Reba McIntyre did like the mocap for Moby Dick? <laughs> yeah. That'd be so good. <laughs> It would perhaps uh, move more gracefully than the um, Boston cop-worthy uh, uh, 
<laughs> human like rocket shaped projectile that Moby Dick sort of looks like <laughs> in uh in this. That's like all I could think of was when Moby Dick was cresting above and all I could think of was that cop going down the slide like a <laughs> like a a log on a flume or something. Oh my god. Still so funny. Still so hilarious to watch. I, I'm willing to bet, because we are recording this uh, a couple weeks in advance, I don't think that the cop slide is going away in the discourse in that time. I've seen people, uh, like, taking photographs at the slide and putting it up on social media. Like, I'm at the cop slide, and <laughs> so it's becoming a tourist destination. I feel like that's a good sign. Uh, but yes, if Moby Dick is played by Reba McIntyre, the end credits would end with Orson Welles and Reba McIntyre as <laughs> Paya Khan. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, would pay to see it. Would absolutely pay to see it. Uh, right. Listeners, as you know by now, uh, we have a guest today. We sure do. Hello. First time guest, writer, cultural critic, and novelist Emily St. James is here. Yay! Hi everyone! I'm so glad to be here. Um, I uh, I've I've been agitating. You have. For a while. I'm just like <laughs> I I I have Oscar buzz. I was and trying I... to remember how far back was the first time you were like I could do Bicentennial Man on your show, and I was like I, I wish you could. Although I know. now that we've we opened things could. up on the Patreon, we should have you on the Patreon to talk about Bicentennial Man because uh, no, you got to have my wife on because I I I have made this deal for her. She hates, <laughs> so she has to go on every movie podcast to discuss Bicentennial Man. So. <laughs> Honestly, it's an event in the making. Um, yes, we've been, I have been, of course, I say this to everybody and it sounds like I'm just making excuses. I really tend to drag my feet when it comes to booking guests and it's just a failing of mine, but we're so happy to finally have you here, especially because you have sprung this, um, uh, somewhat format breaking film on us which i love um sending yeah. us careening back into the 1950s which is very exciting i was like when you sent me the list of films that you're considering and there were so many good ones on there and i had a couple other pitches and then i was like i want to find like the oldest movie yeah you could realistically <laughs> say you could cover on the show where you could like prove it had oscar yes and then got totally blanked which is so hard to do it is and and this movie, I can't say definitively it had Oscar buzz, but it got a DGA nomination. So yeah, like somebody. It's a pretty good indicator, I would say. And you look at old critics groups too. I do think that in the history of the New York Film Critics Circle, that is always kind of a good indicator yeah. as well. Maybe more <laughs> than something like uh, early Golden Globes would even be. Yeah. Um, just because that influence, I think, has always been there in terms of the Academy and, you know... The community what. was smaller back then. There were, mm -hmm. you know, the ways things could influence things were more direct. I think critics had more of a... Specific critics, I guess, even, you know, your Bosley Crowthers and whatnot would have more of an impact on uh, things like the Oscar race. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good indicator. And it opens up a lot of interesting conversation. I was reading... Um, the inside Oscar chapter on nineteen on the 1956 Oscars, which the, mm -hmm. the farther you go back in time with that, there's, there's less yeah. uh, detail because it's, it's just sort of harder to mine, but like a really fascinating Oscar year that we'll definitely delve into later on in the episode, because, um, a lot of interesting things going on at the Oscars in 1956, none of which unfortunately was Moby Dick, <laughs> uh, because it did get blanked. 
Poor John Houston. Poor John Houston after... Well, okay, I think another indicator, too, is, like, we know the type of... This is was true then, is true today, that, you know, when somebody is on a run with Oscar and, like, being nominated or considered, you know, the next project always has some type of anticipation in that regard. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that, like, John Houston's Oscar record is so consecutive. It's, like... Just directing alone four nominations in the span of five years, which is, I, I guess I had never put two and two together in that way. John like, Ford-esque in that way, yeah. Yeah, I mean, th- that's a pretty rare thing. And e- uh, even today, I mean, there's not a lot of people working as often, which I think was true of a lot of directors and studio directors of this time. Mm-hmm. But even on, you know, say... a four out of five run of movies yeah. even if it's spread over a wider because it's what you know, it's calendar. treasure this year madre uh asphalt jungle african queen and um moulin, moulin rouge, rouge no exclamation point right right which is the uh the namesake of the production company that uh produced this film and then quickly um perhaps appropriately went underwater in terms of budget as the the budget more than doubled as this movie was made uh somewhat unavoidably i imagine i'm always looking for like directors from this period whose filmographies are like manageable right like you could never watch yeah. all the howard hawks movies right. john houston he made 20 some films but yeah. you could watch all of them pretty easily i think there's a couple that are really hard to find but like yeah i was like is it going to be hard to find this movie no it was it was on freebie freebie yes Yes. (laughs) freebie really is the way to watch this movie it kind of looks like shit on freebie like this movie clearly needs some type of restoration yeah i would love to to see it on a big screen and like a really nice print of it yeah Yeah. because you get these kind of you know, mid-century practical effects that sometimes look absolutely absurd, and in the next shot, there's actually a really cool practical effects shot. Yeah. And then the next shot is, you know, close-up of three guys in a pool waving their arms in the air and yelling. Right, right. <laughs> um, but it's also... And then the, the sort immediate of... hard cut to, like, pharmaceutical ads. <laughs> yes, th- yeah, that's the thing, is the freebie, uh, the freebie ads really do come out of nowhere it's very funny um it's also the the color palette of this movie is so distinctive and striking where he overlaid the black and white print over the color print so it has this sort of like of two worlds but also of no worlds kind of uh, effect to it as you're watching it Mm -hmm. it's it's mesmerizing and odd which i love it does it does look so shitty, the print that they have right now. Yeah. And like, but the kind of thing I liked about it was it gave me big, like, middle aged dad feels to yes. watch it on freebie. Cause mm-hmm. it's just like you're sitting there and this movie that's been beat to hell, but it's just randomly showing on television is on and you're, you're just gripped enough by it to not want to change the channel. And then every so often somebody yells at you about how freebie has the emoji movie. And you're like, great. <laughs> I watched, I for a different podcast, I watched Tender Mercies last night. That's a fucking great film, uh-huh. but it's also on Freebie. Yeah. 
And free, like they, the way these these services work is they algorithmically insert the ads, so they have an AI decide where a good break is, and the AI doesn't always know. It really didn't know with Tender Mercies, a movie where kind of nothing happens, right? And it just would be like there'd be like a scene of like Duval like singing a song, and then suddenly you'd be in a truck ad. Wow, it, just, it was mm-hmm. great. <laughs> I can't believe like, Jenny my wife finally was like, doing all the Bruce Beresford movies. I yeah, can't believe you've absolutely. given me this scoop. That's fantastic. <laughs> I am on a, I am on an upcoming episode. And, we're going to yeah, talk. I'm going to ask you about that after we're done then because I don't yeah. know what their next uh, miniseries Ooh. is. And I need to find out. Um, the I've, I think I've talked about this on Mike before. The Betty Buckley scene of Tender Mercies. I don't think I'm as big of a fan of that movie as you are, but that Betty Buckley scene where it's the Oscar-nominated song for it, but she rips it in that scene. It is just so good. Like, on a break from Cats, she goes and shoots this American independent film about country western music, and she's incredible. That scene is amazing. There's, There's like one of the things I was struck by watching that movie is every Christian movie of the 21st century is trying to do tender mercies and can't because tender mercies like is very sincere and very like invested in its character being a terrible person, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. before the film starts and he's, you know, Christian movies just, they don't, they don't have the juice. They just can't do it. They just can't mm-hmm. pull a tender mercy. Yeah. So. Tender Mercies made me really want to watch The Apostle, which I've never seen. I'd be mm-hmm. curious. It what does you feel like those feel like bookend movie. movies a little yeah. bit. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm um I'm kind of obsessed with movies about Christianity that don't treat it like that either don't treat it as a laughing stock or right. as like the solution to all your problems. Right. And they're like outside of Scorsese, they can be kind of hard to find. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, the apostles are really good. Like Duval was kind of on this like one man quest to like make movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, and uh, the apostles uh, are really great. Did one. you I'd ever see prefer... the Vera Farmiga movie Higher Ground? Going to bring this up. It's a good movie about, uh, in my in my estimation at least, about grappling and wrestling with religion as without being like oh watch as this like you know this woman's uh religious upbringing sort of ruined her life it's it's much mm-hmm. more interesting than that and i'm surprised uh, has she yeah. never directed anything else chris uh, uh i thought she much like patrick wilson was also moving into directing horror directing movies, insidious sequels um <laughs> but it's a really interesting movie, sequels uh that nobody mm-hmm. seemed to latch on to as much as i wanted them to higher ground so I'm. I'll, I'll check it out. I, I love the Michael. I think it's Michael Tolkien movie, The Rapture. Oh, um, I've never seen that. That's one. that's uh, that is a kind of a fucked up movie. Yeah, but it's very much like very much in the grounds of like we're going to take Christianity seriously and so seriously that we like show you some of the horrific elements of it. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that one for the show. Did that have Oscar buzz? It feels like it must have. Critics liked it. Maybe. What year was it? Ninety one. I think. Okay. I'll look into that. It's very possible. Um, 91, I was too young to like remember things like on my own. So I have to like dig into the. Uh... Yeah. I just remember it from Roger Ebert hyping it all the time, mm, which yeah. like, yeah. Roger it's... Ebert was always a good bellwether for stuff like that. There are definitely certain movies um, from back then that I remember mostly because like Roger was kind of like writing, uh, writing for yeah. it, which is yeah, good legacy yeah. to have. It, 
It looks like he was the one guy who did, but there was some like interest in if sure. um, Mimi Rogers might make the make. Oh, make I do remember actually hearing about uh, a, a, the a Mimi Rogers movie that got her Oscar buzz. I bet you that's the one that I'm remembering. So, yeah. Um, Chris, what else? What other table setting should we talk about? We should uh, promote the Patreon before we get. I was gonna bring it. this up before we get into Emily's Oscar origin story, listeners. We've been hyping this all month. We have launched our Patreon. This had Oscar buzz, turbulent brilliance for five dollars a month. You can get two bonus episodes at Patreon.com/slash. This had Oscar buzz. One of those episodes will be what we call exceptions, movies which usually fit the This Had Oscar Buzz rubric of great expectations and disappointing results, even if the movie got one or two Oscar nominations. These are the episodes that our listeners have been asking for for a long time. They're here, over at our Patreon. Uh, We've already got one episode on nine, and in a few days from when this episode airs, we'll have an episode on Pleasantville. I think you all want to hear the Pleasantville episode, so head on over to the Patreon. Patreon. Our second bonus episode every month will be uh, more of a departure from the format. We are calling those exception or er, excursions. Uh, we'll talk about different Oscar race check-ins. We're going to be doing e fall movie preview preview flashbacks we'll watch some old award shows and talk about them we'll be doing actress round tables patreon only mailback episodes it's going to be a good time we already have our first excursion episode up talking about my experience going to the great the wonderful the theatrical event of our lifetimes magic mike live uh, so to sign up for this had oscar buzz turbulent brilliance go to our patreon page at patreon.com slash this had oscar buzz Yay. I'm so excited right. for people to hear about your trip to Magic Mike Live. It's such a it's it's a it's a good time had by all. <laughs> I ascended to a higher plane of existence. I truly I don't remember if I said this on mic, but one of the people I was with, a uh, family member, took a video of the show and apparently in the background you can hear me just screaming, I'm so happy. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, it it was a great night, great night. Go listen to it on the Patreon. You gotta send me that video, by the way. I do need to watch that, but yes. I might have to ask for the video. I don't know if I have it, but I have a million other videos from All right. (laughs) Anyway, here we are. Emily, we're so happy to have you. Hi. Uh, Whenever we have guests, we like to uh, talk about what we call the Oscar origin story. So tell us and our listeners, when did you first get familiar with the Oscars? Were you super into them when you first became aware of them? Or, you know, were they just like kind of a part of the movie ethos for you? I, I know that I knew, like I, I had always known about them. Um, I, um, my, my adoptive mother, the, the woman who raised me loved movies, but she loved like, she grew up in the sixties. So she loved like the big, movie musicals of that era so i've seen my fair lady all more than anyone (laughs) who could claim to be a millennial should reasonably have seen my fair lady i've probably seen it seven or eight times i love that movie and when i tell people that they're like really and i'm like you know it's it's i don't have a lot of nostalgia for things because i didn't get to see a lot of movies growing up but my fair lady i'm like yeah (laughs) my fair lady is your Um, goonies or your labyrinth or something like that yeah (laughs) yeah but like because of that, I sort of became aware of oh, there's this thing called Best Picture, right? And it's you know a prestigious award. So I think the first year that I really remember like 
being cognizant of the Oscars as a thing that happened was the year that Rain Man won. Sure. I didn't like pay attention to the nominations or anything like that, but Rain Man won like I think four Oscars and I was like, oh, that's that's the that's the best movie yeah. of all time. You know, <laughs> like I I hadn't seen it, but like and then, you know, the next year was Driving Miss Daisy, which was um, a big deal because it was the first movie my grandmother had seen in theaters since Gone with the Wind. She like evidently only liked watching Best Picture winners that have deeply creepy. Right. right. That's a, um, <laughs> it's a narrative. All right. OK. Um, and then she saw Fried Green Tomatoes because she became a Jessica Tandy stan. And that was it. She saw those three movies in theaters her whole life. So. I love the idea. She got of, lesbians in there somehow. Yeah. Driving Miss Daisy is <laughs> a gateway drug to fried green tomatoes. Like, there are worse things. That's maybe the best thing you can <laughs> say about that movie. So, um, that's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. I think the big breakthrough year was, I grew up in South Dakota, and Dances with Wolves was mostly shot there. Right. And then it's this huge Oscar sensation, and it became like a point of pride for the state of South Dakota that this movie was shot in South Dakota. Like you can still to this day, if you're driving along Interstate 90 through South Dakota, it's this long, desolate stretch of highway. Yeah. There's not a ton, especially once you get past uh, the, the Missouri River. But there are these like little gas stations that are like, come see Dances with Wolves props. And it's like how the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company still exists. Sure. And you're like, <laughs> sure. This is a weird remnant of a time. So I was bit keenly aware of Dances with Wolves. But that was also the year I had the first thing you could reasonably call like a favorite current movie. Mm -hmm. Before that, I had only liked old movies. And then I saw Home Alone in the theater nice. and was like, this, this is the movie that should win Best Picture. Yep. And I remember when the nominations came out, I was so sure it would get like 18, you know? Yeah. And I pull out the newspaper and to this day. I can remember that it got score and song, which is a thing I think not a lot of people think about when they think about Home Alone. And mostly because John Williams was involved in both. But like, I was so irate. And then everyone around town was was uh, excited about, you know, Dances with Wolves because it was filmed there. And then I read the rest of the movies and I was like, Goodfellas, what the fuck is that? It's not Home Alone. <laughs> yeah. I think I've told the story on this podcast before, but I remember watching because for a while there, I was able to watch like the first hour of the Oscars and then I had to go to bed. I was, you know, 12 years old or whatever. I was 11 and I could watch until 10 o'clock uh, or nine from eight until nine. And then come nine o'clock, I had to go to bed because the Oscars were on a Monday night. So it was a school night. Um, and I remember the year after Joe Pesci won, of course, he comes out to present supporting actress the next year. Mm -hmm. And so they introduce him as last year's winner for best supporting actor, Joe Pesci. And I don't know if I even said it to anybody, but I remember thinking it in my head of like, oh, he won for Home Alone. That's, that's good. Of course, that makes sense. That, you know, that's, that, that's, that's only logical in my mind. Like, of course, he won for Home Alone. He was the best supporting actor last year. Like, that makes sense. Okay. And, you know, to some extent, I bet that, you know, obviously he won because he had a long career. He'd worked with Scorsese all those times. He's amazing in Goodfellas. Yeah. But being in Home Alone when the voting was happening couldn't hurt. hurt him. Yeah. No. He's very good in that movie. He is. He's having. You know, um, he's clearly not having a great time, but he's yeah. pushing through it. <laughs> who can't relate to that? Who can't relate to that in the workplace? Home Alone is but, one of the big Christmas season movies in my family. Well, all if we 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 don't necessarily all watch it together, but at some point over the season, we will all have ended up watching it at some point. Um, and 
I imagine if you asked my mom who her favorite character is, it would almost certainly be Joe Pesci's character because he's yeah. his reactions to everything are the funniest. His sort of, uh, you know, grumble mumbles as he's you know cursing under his breath or whatever. Which apparently, yeah. uh, Joe Pesci did like invented that on the spot because he kept cursing for real, and they're like, yeah. "This is a family movie. This is a kids movie. You can't just curse as you're." As you know, you're reacting to these things, and so he sort of uh, just started that sort of like Yosemite Sam esque like reciprocity, <laughs> um, which is a great story. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, you know, the, I was kind. It was kind of a great spot for a movie obsessed kid who couldn't see a lot of movies because, yeah. like, I grew up 45 minutes away from our nearest movie theater. Yeah. And the r- rental selections were like just like there was one half wall in each of our convenience stores that had a little collection of titles. Yeah. Generally, just close to new releases. Occasionally, there would be like an old movie, by which I mean a movie from 1981 or something, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and I was, I was very heavily policed in what I could watch, so I couldn't rent a lot of them. Right. But like, I got very into Disney for that reason. I saw a lot of their animated movies, mm-hmm. especially as they were re released. So the next year's Beauty and the Beast. Yes. And like, that's, that was like a really good like streak for me because that year it got nominated for Best Picture. Right. And mm-hmm. I still hadn't seen it. But I could be like, well, I know Disney, and this must be the best movie of all time. And it lost to The Silence of the Lambs. But I was like cognizant of Silence of the Lambs sure. because people I knew had seen it and had really liked it. And like my parents had seen it, which is weird for them in a horror film. Yeah. I think people forget what a huge hit that was. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, from there, I just was like, I got, I was a movie obsessed kid and I needed a way to learn about film history. And the Oscars became that. Yeah. Like my other grandmother, my mom's mom, who kind of gave my mom her love of movies. I would go visit her. She lived a couple hours away from us. I would go visit her for a week every summer, and she would just take me to the Lewis Drugstore of Huron, South Dakota, which had endless like amounts of videos you could rent. And we would just rent everything I wanted to watch. We'd watch all of it. And that's how I saw a lot of the formative movies I've seen. Like I still weirdly have a lot of blind spots from basically the year 1980 to like 1993 because i was you know i i grew up in that time and grew up in a house where i wasn't watching a lot of stuff but like i saw a lot of the best pictures from the 60s and 70s yeah um you know she she would like not let me just sit down and watch midnight cowboy sure but she (laughs) she definitely was like here this is good let's watch you know bridge on the river quad or um you know american in paris so like i became like the oscars as much as people complain about them, I cannot not have affection for them because they gave me my love of film to a real extent. I watched a lot of bad movies that have won Best Picture, but you know, right. uh, Lawrence of Arabia remains one of my favorite films. Like, it's every so often they get it so right that they keep you coming back. It's mm-hmm. it's the thing we talk about, Chris and I, a lot on this podcast, which is for all of the Oscars' faults, they are an ambassador to the rest of the country for, and like, this is why I'm always harping about the Oscar telecast, not getting away from the movies. They keep trying, they keep acting embarrassed about 
the awards part of the show and the movies part of the show. And I'm just like, even in a world that has, you know, become so much more interconnected than when we were all younger, but like it can still be an ambassador for, especially now in a public, which is like watching less and less, you know, types of movies. Love that he cut out Um, at in a world. I don't know. Soapbox (laughs) and all. Oh no. (laughs) We have the most, uh, the most uh, delayed gratification Ray LaFontaine right now. I'm going to finish this. Oh, he's back. What happened there? Jesus Christ. I was just joking that you cut out at in a world. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Um, I don't know. All of a sudden, like, it didn't even, like, it just went away. Zoom just, like, cut out on me. That's crazy. You can just, you can splice the audio together by just throwing in a big splash audio. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's a good uh, good indication that I should shut up and we should uh, transition to talking about Moby Dick then. I do. Back I, to more uh, Moby Dick. I, I do want to sort of like, I generally agree with you. I, you know, a lot of like Oscar bloggers or whatever complained about everything everywhere all at once winning. And it was not my pick of those movies, but it was a great like, a great exemplar of the movie year that was 2022. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was so happy that it won a bunch of Oscars just because... You know, it made people who wouldn't have checked that movie out check it out and really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, you can sort of already feel happening that Oscar night 2023, 2024 is going to be like, we're just going to be continuing the long tail of Barbenheimer. Right. And that's going to be great yeah. because it's this, this, you know, I, I, I haven't reached the end of the year yet. I don't know if either of those films will be my favorite of the year, but like, I love living in this moment yes. as a movie fan. Yeah. And I think the Oscars celebrating that with two critically loved box office beloved like movies yeah. is great. They should do more of it is what I'm saying. Well, and when the Oscars can be also, you know, a yearbook of, you know, mm-hmm. and, and in that way where it's this is why I'm never mad that the Oscars don't choose my own number one movie of the year as their one. It's just like, I don't need it to be, I don't need it to need it to match my tastes. Exactly. I need it to feel like a, you know, a, a fitting retrospective to the year in some way or another, you know what I mean? And, and you know, tell us a story of what the last year at the movies was like. And um, I think if it is the Barbenheimer Oscars, then certainly that would fit that bill. So It'll feel like the past year of movies if they change the Oscar statue to be pink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Our first pink Oscar statue. Um, <laughs> You're to look for a white whale. Hey there, friends and Garys and party people. We are just popping in for a little message. And that message is, Chris, you want to say it with me? Let's not. No, what? we can't. We can't. We can't sync our words. We're Ooh. on Zoom. It'll sound insane. Ooh. Um. But the Fantasy Movie League is back in town. I just want to say that she's back. She's back. And I'm scared for these girls. <laughs> Are you doing Tiffany New York Pollard? It's my favorite Tiffany on Pollard. On this day? Quote. That is a high bar to clear. That is a deeply high bar well, to clear. Well, I mean... When we're letting Gemma quote, know. If you're talking like monologue, of which there are many, it's Gemma Collins. It's also wait, I'm trying to think of the the thing on Big Brother UK where she thought that Angie Bowie was saying that uh that um David is dead. Yeah, but the wrong David. The David who was what was his name? Liza Minnelli's husband. 
Um, David Geffen. No, no not David, David Geffen. Geffen. Uh, David Guest. David Guest, right. Um, who was asleep in the next room. Um, but I guess there's no like single quote from that. Also, I tend to, I like, like, what's the one she says in Flavor of Love Season 2 where she just goes, you're a dreamer, you dream a lot. Like, that's a good <laughs> you're one. You're a dreamer. You're a dreamer, you dream a lot. Um, and then uh, when uh, Buck Wild throws her shoe at her at the Flavor of Love 2 reunion, and she just goes, and you missed, and you missed, like that whole thing. Oh my God, all of it's so good. Um, anyway, all of this is to say that um, much like Boots in the at the end of her run on Charm School, um, Vulture Fantasy Movie League is back and uh, better than ever, hopefully, is what I will say. We are here earlier than we were last year. We are here. Uh, the gameplay is much more interesting because we are making picks throughout fall festival season. There's a lot sure more are. guesswork. There's also the added obstacle of the fact that a writers and actors strike is happening in Hollywood, which is causing the bullheaded studios to move their films to 2024 rather than pay their professionals because they are dumb. Um, we have already seen a few movies uh, move to 2024, including as we are recording this, uh, just a couple days ago, Dune Part 2 was moved Dune. to 2024. Um, which I think some people who may have drafted early in the league may have already drafted Dune Part 2, and that is bad luck for them. So what I will say, as I'm saying to people, is be aware when you're drafting. And also, maybe not the worst idea to, like, we you draft... Uh, Drafting can go on through September 28th. Maybe strategize and hold on your horses a little bit and wait till later in September to draft your team because um, uh, you'll know more then. You'll certainly know more <laughs> about festival buzz as well. But the other fl flip side of that coin is, and Chris, I think you agree with me on this one, is don't miss it. Don't let the date go by where you've missed signing up Correct. for the league entirely. You will regret it. Put a little I Google will also Kale. say, to those of you who embrace chaos, madness, and confusion and want to draft early, we do respect it. We do respect That's true. the risk, That's the true. challenge, That's true. and most importantly, potential bragging rights. The chutzpah. We, we appreciate chutzpah in this place. Uh, the other thing that we want to mention is for the Vulture Movie Fantasy League this year, is they are offering an option when you sign up for your team to enter in a league name. And so with a league name, you can then, when you look at your scores, click on a button and it'll show you where your scores compare to people who are also in your league. So, our dear Garys, we are offering you guys the info of a Garys, uh, Garys exclusive league within... The Vulture Movie Fantasy League. So when you sign up for your team, after you put in your email address and your name, there is a field that says league name, which is optional. And for the this had Oscar Buzz loyalists out there, we are saying put in the following as your league name. All of us Garys. All one word, because uh, alpha, only alphanumeric characters count. So capital A for all, capital O for of, capital U for us, and capital G for Gary's, but make it all one word. You know, the, you know. Gary's um, with a Y-S. 
Gary's with a Y-S, G-A-R-Y-S. Um, we will put it on our Twitter feed if you want to go and check the spelling before you do it. We will have it. Do it maybe we can pin it to the top of our Twitter. Maybe we can uh, mm. do that. Um, but that way you can compete with the Gary's throughout the season in Vulture Movie Fantasy League. We will uh, listen. We are doing nothing about bringing to people together. Bringing people together. It's what we are about. Get a rivalry going with your fellow Garys. One million percent. You know, you know what we also might get do? Get a friendship. Get teams going among the listenership. We could Fight put each a, other. We could we put a battle, thread into bloodshed. our Patreon uh, uh, section where people can talk about the Fantasy League in the comments on the Patreon, which gives you I'll yet another reason for this. to sign up for our Patreon. Uh, but anyway, All of Us Garys is going to be the league name for everybody who wants to compete with other Garys uh, who are fans of this at Oscar Buzz. Otherwise, or uh, to that end, you can go to vulture.com slash movies dash league to join up with the Vulture Movie Fantasy League. From there, you can also check out the massive draft kit that I wrote in preparation for the league, where I talk about different strategies that you can use while drafting your team. I give uh, capsule reviews for, a, or uh, capsule previews rather, for a bunch of uh, available movies. Everything that's available is on this draft guide in one way or another, whether it's a capsule uh, preview or I have some of the lower lower priced items uh, designated into some lists in the bargain bin. So everything that you could possibly want in terms of how should I draft a team? What is this about? What's a good strategy? I tried to throw it in there into that draft kit. I just want everybody to have as much fun as possible I think it's going to be a good time. The other thing I should add, as far as rule changes, there have been a few rule changes in terms of some of the points have been uh, tinkered with. But the big one is last year we sort of had a rolling system for box office points where depending on when you signed up, you were able to start accruing box office points right away. This year we are making it more hard and fast. If a movie opens before... September 29th, when the league starts, that movie will not be eligible for box office points at all. So no matter when you sign up, uh, there are movies that are box office eligible and there are movies that are not box office eligible. All the ones that are box office eligible, which is to say you can earn points based on those movies' box office performances, all of those movies will open on or after September 29th. So... um, be aware of that. Otherwise, Chris, what else is there to say? I'm excited. I am also very excited. I am eagerly looking forward to doing much better than I did last year. <laughs> uh, and I'm excited to see how, you know, the Gary's team does. Yeah, yeah, same, same. So, um, like I said, sign up for our Patreon and you can uh, throw us some uh, feedback in the comments there. Otherwise, tweet at us. Check out our Twitter feed for, like I said, uh, we'll put uh, the All of Us Gary's team name up there. Sign up. Have fun. Be keeping, Keep one eye on that release calendar and make sure that every, everything you're drafting is indeed uh, opened or set to open in 2023. Hopefully the studios will 
get their shit together and end this strike soon so we don't have to worry about any more movies bailing to 2024 and we're going to have a very good time and back to your regularly scheduled uh, aquatic adventure for Moby Dick let the games begin let the games begin white whale not to not to be uh uh segway man or whatever but all you look at the 1956 Oscars which Moby Dick was not able to crack the lineup for that was a year that told a particular story about the year in movies. And that story was big movies. Every movie that was nominated for Best Picture that year was this sort of like big, sweeping, massive affair. Even something like a movie called Friendly Persuasion, which I've never seen, but I never assumed that it was this like Civil War epic or whatever. I always imagined it would, it sounds like Friendly Persuasion sounds like either a romantic comedy or like something that's sort of like smaller and, and not this, you know, Gary Cooper movie about uh, about the Civil War or whatever, but there's, you know, Around the World in 80 Days is your best picture winner, uh, Giant and The King and I and My Beloved The Ten Commandments. This is also a year where I've seen three of the five uh, best picture nominees. From 1956, that's pretty good for me. Like, I, I'm, uh, I'm still filling in, I'm backfilling in my, uh, my th- movie history. I think I've seen four of the five. I haven't seen Friendly Persuasion, which you're right. Sounds like a Billy Wilder film that is like kind of about homosexuality, right. but kind of not. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like the only a, one a, I haven't seen either. Like a, you know, you can't live in this country without having seen ten, at least part of Ten Commandments exactly. on TV. Yeah. In, in Passover season, and like, uh, yeah, Giant. Uh, I saw that and. Uh, I watched all the best picture winners at one point. So I've seen all the ones I could find easily in, in South Dakota. So not all of them, but like I've seen <laughs> around the world in 80 days. I've a friend of mine knew I was watching this. I knew I was watching Moby Dick and he was like, well, you know, was, did it, did it, was it snubbed? And I was like, I, for the, for some reason I thought it came out in 1952 uh-huh. and I was like, well, absolutely should have beat greatest show on earth. Right. Like one of the worst movies to ever win best picture. Right. And mm-hmm. then I realized it came out in 56 and I was like, Oh, a different one of the worst movies. To ever win best picture. <laughs> so like, I feel, I do not know that I would nominate Moby Dick for 1956, but I feel confident it's better than yeah. around the world in 80 days. I will yeah. say reading up on these Oscars did make me at least want to watch around the world in 80 days just to see what it's like, because um, the fact that oh. it like, it was this massive blockbuster hit played for 14 months in theaters and uh, Mike Todd, who I only really knew of as Elizabeth Taylor's husband before uh, Eddie Fisher um, was this like mega producer who like really took this, you know, took this chance on this like massive movie, essentially invented the concept of the cameo in casting that movie, like invented the concept of, you know, big movie stars taking these small roles. Um, and um, it just made me, you know, very curious to see. And because the other thing, the only really thing I knew about Around the World in 80 Days was that it's regarded as one of the worst uh, uh, Best Picture winners. So uh, I definitely would like to check that one out at some point. But the other thing about friendly persuasion before we move on, cause I did, uh, I did make note of this as I was reading through, uh, like I said, inside Oscar earlier, there's a quote from Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper was the star of friendly persuasion about Anthony Perkins, who was, you know, oh, early to mid twenties at this point. This qu- 
And he said, I can't remember, oh, Life. It was a Life cover story about the movie. And it quoted Gary Cooper uh, saying about Anthony Perkins, Anthony Perkins, who, of course, was gay and closeted and and has a really fascinating life, actually. Um, uh, I think he'd do well to spend a summer on a ranch. It would toughen him up and he'd learn a lot from another kind of people. Like... That's so fucking loaded and coded, and I hate it. I hate it for Anthony Perkins. It made me sad for Anthony Perkins as I read that quote. Um, I think anyway. that ranch might have actually could have been a boat because it seems like the filming of this movie might have been that level. Yeah, of maybe experience. Anthony Perkins could Just have cast spent Anthony Perkins a summer filming movie day. or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> all right, we should move into the plot description before we uh, before we get too far ahead. All right, let's uh, let's let's set the table then. While we do that, once again, listeners, we are here to talk about Moby Dick, directed by none other than the one and only John Huston, written by John Huston and Ray Bradbury. We'll get into it. Mm-hmm. Adapted, obviously, from the Herman Melville novel, starring Gregory Peck, Richard Basehart, Leo Jen, James Robertson, Justice Harry Andrews, many more, and then Orson Welles. Uh, the movie premiered June 27th, 1956, a 4th of July movie before really the 4th of July movie was a thing. That's a per- that's a, honestly a perfect date for this yeah, movie. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's when they launch Perfect Storm. You know, that's yeah. when people want to see a lot of men die. Yeah. It's <laughs> very true. Very true. Yes. All right, Emily, as our guest, you are charged with doing a 60-second plot description of the film. This okay. is a high uh, task considering, uh, you know, the thousand-page novel that it's based on. But are you ready? Let's do it. All right, then your 60-second plot description of Moby Dick starts now. Call me Ishmael. Ishmael's a guy who wants to do something with his life, so he goes and joins a fishing voyage. He meets a man named Queequeg in an inn. They become friends. They listen to Orson Welles tell them about how death is around the corner and everyone needs to respect God. Then they go to sea. At sea, they have many adventures. They're very episodic. They're going out whaling. They shoot. They hunt some whales. They meet other people. Their their captain is named Ahab. He's played by Gregory Peck. He's like, we got to kill this whale, Moby Dick. He took my leg, and he killed the son of this other boat, and we're going to go get him, and we're going to go kill him. They chase Moby Dick all across seconds. the Pacific. I think, yes, all across the Pacific. At the Bikini Atoll, a, thing, a detail added for this film, probably because of the recent H-bomb tests, uh, they uh, catch up to to Moby Dick and they uh, go on a long chase after him and they finally hunt him down and they are uh, going to kill him. Everyone almost abandons Ahab and Ahab's like, no, listen, I know this has cost me my life. Anyway, here we go. We're going to kill the whale. They don't kill the whale. The whale kills all of them. Ishmael escapes on a floating coffin. The end. (laughs) With one second to go, you got it all in there. That is, I think, one of the 60 second plot description achievements of this entire podcast. Very good. Well done. I mean, like, I know the book really well, so that helps. But the thing about Moby Dick is, in both literary and cinematic form, it is, like, very plotty, but doesn't really have much of a plot. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. It repeats itself a lot, which is which is part of its charm. But Yeah, Moby Dick is one of those movies, I've never read it. Um, it feels like one of those movies where if you, or one of those movies, one of those books, geez, this is why, this is why I've never read it because when I start to talk about books, I <laughs> unconsciously you open a book say and movies. expect to watch it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it seems like one of those books that if you didn't read it in the course of your education, you know what I mean? Then 
when you do read it as an adult, if you do, it becomes a project. It becomes, like, I remember so many people who, like, I'm reading Moby Dick, here's my thread about it. You know what I mean? Like, you have to almost, mm-hmm. like, turn it into a venture because yeah. it's, it's you know, such an undertaking. And to do it outside of, you know, the bounds of an a formal education, you know, structure, that it feels like you almost need some sort of, like, you know, uh, superstructure to get you, yeah. not to get you through it. It's not like, I don't know, it sounds like people enjoy it, but it also feels like a, a book that people need to process as they go along. I don't know. What do you, uh, am I, am I talking out of my ass about this, Emily? No, no, no. I read it. So I, in 2018, I randomly bought a copy of it at the last bookstore here in LA. I just, it was on, on some for sale table. And I was like, I have, only read the like classics illustrated version of this. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to sit down and read Moby Dick because yeah. Moby Dick, like in the popular imagination is kind of basically this film. It is like a high adventure, high incident plot, but then you're like, but the book is like 850 pages and it is uh, like all novels of that period. You know, it just takes breaks from the plot to have these long digressions right. on like whatever Herman Melville's thinking about. Yeah. I that was the summer right after I sort of I've sort of come out as a trans woman and so I was reading it I take the train a lot of places in LA I was reading it on the train a lot I wasn't on hormones yet but one time this man walked past me pointed at the book and said that book's about a whale and I was like is he reading me as a woman like is this already happening <laughs> You've been mansplained to congratulations Yeah <laughs> And that was like really my first in my first experience with that I think that man was just trying to make some sort of weird joke but like thank you random man on the LA subway um, but yeah I think uh, I it took me a long time to get through it mm-hmm. as you'd expect it's a very long book and the thing that trips a lot of people up is that what Herman Melville is most interested in outside of, you know, like sin and God and all of this is whale facts. There are long stretches of the book that are just him talking about the nature of whales. Yeah. And you're like, Ishmael, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> tell me more about how you tell me more about how you and Queequeg were in love. Yes. It's like <laughs> it is it, like I, I think I made a tweet because I did do a threat yeah. to like get me through it. At the time, I did a tweet that was like, uh Ishmael. Now the duodecimo whale, uh, Queequeg putting his hand over Ish- Ishmael's. Ish, come on. <laughs> um, and there it, is that ish, scene of ish, the movie late. that, like, come dis- to bed. Yeah. <laughs> There's the whole sequence in the movie too, where they like render down the whale blubber, mm-hmm. and it's like shot like it's in some type of dirty factory. Yeah, yeah, that's that is such a classic part of the book. And there's a there's a mm-hmm. musical coming up from Dave Malloy who wrote. Um, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 that I'm like amazing really excited for and like one of the songs that's been released from it is a is a stage adaptation of that number of like how people breaking it down and getting down to the blubber and so on but one of the things I think works about Moby Dick where a lot of novels of its period get lost in those digressions is it, it Melville is presenting Ishmael's obsession with figuring out everything about whales as a kind of trauma response because he was on a boat and everybody died and he survived right. and he's going to tell us the story and he keeps getting, um, you know, he's sort of preventing getting from the end of that story by telling you everything about whales. But it's also like he's trying to understand the thing that killed all these men he lived with, all these men he knew, yeah. and, and also arguably his lover. The book is pretty, pretty 
I think pretty intentional. It's yeah. you know, it codes him and Queequeg as a as an interracial gay couple, which of course at the time would have been hugely scandalous. Um, but of course, there are readers who don't read it that way. It's it's fu- it's funny how you know uh, you get that in literature, and then the movie. If you've only ever processed it as a movie, especially a movie made in 1956, you're like, oh, I didn't get that, uh, or like, oh, I would have had to maybe like work harder for that, or I was paying more attention to the fact that they got this Austrian actor who was what's the uh, um, right this Austrian actor to play uh, Queequeg, and apparently it wasn't. The tattoos were not um, drawn on or painted on, but it was a, like, skin-tight prosthetic, almost, that, like, uh, Mm. that's what I read, at least. I could be... That does not sound comfortable. It doesn't. It It doesn't sound comfortable. Um, It is, like, if I have a complaint about this film, besides that they cast an Austrian man as Queequeg, it is that, like, in the book, Queequeg's arguably the fourth most important character right. after Ahab, Ishmael, and Starbuck. And in the movie, he's basically not a presence. He pops up when mm-hmm. he's ne- vital to the plot, right. but it, he, yeah, he's just not really there. Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to like get a sense of how I feel about the story just from the from the movie, which feels almost like there are certain movies where you watch the movie. And you're like, well, I I feel like I get unless it's this like notoriously like don't think you understand the book from re- watching that movie, um, the Moby Dick, the John Huston Moby Dick is said to be one of the more faithful adaptations of it. I, I I that was sort of the the line on it at the time. Watching the movie, I'm like, I if I'm going to if I wanted to read Moby Dick. I would still need to read it as much as I ever did after watching this movie because like it just feels like a completely separate venture to try and make this as a movie. It it, it feels um very much like its own thing even not having read the book. Um yeah. But it's such an interesting object as a movie. I understand where people at the time were so weirded out by the idea of Gregory Peck as he had been up until this point in his career playing Ahab. And it's fascinating to me that a lot of the criticisms of Peck in the role are like, he's not, he's not crazy enough. He's not big enough. He's not. And I'm just like, that's not big enough because watching this movie, (laughs) I'm like, he is on, he's not, he's not on one. He's on like eight. And it's, he's so (laughs) over the top to me who like knows Gregory Peck for like, you know, to kill a mockingbird or whatever. Um, I would say that's true of the final stretch of the movie because up until, you know, when Moby Dick is actually attacking the boat, et cetera, and they're attacking Moby Dick, it's, I thought it was kind of a drab performance for the most part. And then when the story really amps up and it becomes, you know, this like uh, terror at sea narrative, then he becomes even when he's not talking to me, like even when he's silent, his like his his facial expression, his posture, just the way he'll like, you know, like bug out an eye at you or whatever. Like it's so big. (laughs) Everything is so big to me. I don't know. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think that people had this idea of Ahab in their minds because one of the things about Moby Dick is it is published and is a flop, 
And the book kind of falls into obscurity for a long time, is rediscovered in like the mid 20th century and begins building its reputation as the great American novel around then. But this is a point in time when like the book is still like a sort of new phenomenon, if you can call a book that had been written a hundred years before new. (laughs) So like there is this conception that Ahab should just be, you know how like Stephen King hates the movie of the shining because he feels like Jack Nicholson is just Mm -hmm. crazy the whole way through. Like, um, it's kind it is it is kind of like that where like I think people expected like Ahab to just come on and be like a raving lunatic. Right. But in the book, what's compelling about Ahab is that like all of us have those obsessive tendencies where we're like, This is a thing I need to get done. This is a, a I need to avenge my leg. We've all done that. Yes, we've all and, avenged our leg. Yeah. <laughs> and like it, it, the thing about him is he does get to that place. And I think Peck plays that pretty well. The first couple scenes I was like, is he miscast? Yeah. And then by the end I was, I was all in. I haven't seen the 98 TV miniseries, which I, I understand has replaced this right. as the movie you watch in high school yeah. at the end of reading the book. <laughs> sure. But, um, but yeah, I it, like Peck apparently thought Patrick Stewart was a better Ahab than he was. And like, I, I don't know. I, I could see it, but also. So who is Peck really in Ahab. the miniseries then? He plays Father Mapple. Oh, the, the okay. That makes character, sense. Which yeah. is very much like if you need, uh, if you need a, a cameo role for like an established older guy who has like a relationship with Moby Dick because Orson Welles tried to stage a, yeah. s- a stage version of Moby Dick for many years. Yeah. Um, you just pull in them for Father Mapple because he like gets the one scene at the start of the book and he gives this big memorable sermon yep. that's like, well, I'm obsessed they, uh, with that concept for Broadway shows. I'm obsessed with like the teen <laughs> angel role in Greece where it's just like, this is the role where we're just going to like just stunt cast it for the entire length of its run. I love We're going to plaster concept. Taylor Hicks on a billboard to yep. come in for one scene yep. of this show. Yep, yeah. exactly. That's exactly what I mean. You're, you're, who does, I imagine. I'm trying to think of who would that be for like a wicked like is that is that your the wizard I guess right you can just sort of like bring I imagine they they stunt cast that role for a while or like I don't know Madame Morrible or something like that um, not not to bring back Betty Buckley but like Grizabella from Cats has kind of traditionally been mm-hmm. that, yes you know? I mean, well now Grizabella has moved on to people like Liana Lewis and. Um, who else played Grisabella? Nicole uh, Scherzinger. Nicole Scherzinger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 That's exactly. Great. That's perfect. I bet Nicole Scherzinger was a wonderful Grisabella. Yeah. <laughs> Wells is funny in this movie, obviously. Like, I was, I, I, I don't know why, whenever it's like later, like, this isn't even like late Wells, but it's like later Wells, right? Um, I always expect the version of Orson Wells from the critic. Um, the, uh, who's the, who's the, God, who's the voice actor who does all the, um, who does the brain, who does essentially, yes, Maurice LaMarche, thank you, um, whose, whose voice of the brain and Pinky of the Brain is essentially also his Orson Welles impersonation (laughs) on the critic, um, and they would always do, like, the takeoffs of, like, Orson Welles doing those, like, uh, uh, frozen dinner uh, commercials, or, like, the, you know, the wine commercials, the critic was the best, I loved it, um, so this isn't quite that version of Orson Welles, but it's still like, I mean, you know, the man can be a ham sandwich and, uh, and Orson we Welles. For it. <laughs> well, and also the way that he shot in this movie, it definitely feels like a completely different set than the rest of that church. Mm-hmm. 
It's it's like they had one shot of him to use the whole time. He yep. just did the whole monologue uh, on this pulpit. Yeah. And it, it's just uh, incorporated strangely in a way that makes you feel like, ah, Orson Welles uh, was probably a real piece of work while they were filming this movie. <laughs> yeah. um, I will also yeah. say... Sorry, go ahead, Emily. Like, uh, like most children of my generation, my first introduction to uh, Orson Welles was in the Transformers movie. Of course, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. I just like, I love that Unicron has been portrayed on screen now by Orson Welles and Coleman Domingo. So like, that just, <laughs> it feels like a rich tradition. And the for two any, greats. Yeah, for any commanding actor with real stage presence to like, it feels like it's going to be our new Joker. You need to do a Unicron. You need to do a turn on it. <laughs> the Transformers movie and G.I. Joe the movie, the one that they released theatrically, were very, very big for me when I was a kid. And um, to the point where I like, re- reading about it afterwards is so fascinating. The fact that in the Transformers movie... Um, Optimus Prime dies and it's it threw children for a loop like kids fucking freaked out. And because of that, the G.I. Joe movie, which released after was re-edited so that Duke would not die, that Duke would be like, oh, he's uh, by the way, Duke's alive, everybody. And like, yeah, that was like the final scene of G.I. Joe the movie. But the other thing about G.I. Joe the movie that I didn't find out till like years and years later, of course, is that like the main bad guy is voiced by Burgess Meredith, which (laughs) I had no idea, like finding out, putting together the pieces and like my late teens of the fact that like Burgess Meredith, one man was able to be what's his face in Rocky. What's his character's name in Rocky? Mickey? The, 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 the yeah. trainer, the trainer in Something Rocky. Like Mickey. Yeah. Um, the cartoon villain Globulus in the G.I. Joe movie, the penguin in the old Batman TV show, and Jack Lemon's dad in Grumpy Old Men. Like I was hoping you were gonna blew get blew my mind that one man could be that many different iconic parts of my childhood. So um good Burgess for Burgess Meredith should have like six Oscars. Right. He yes. Just, yeah. Yes. Like he got twice over. Three of them should be for Grumpy Old Men. <laughs> <laughs> Gene Herschel Award for his performance. But uh, just for, for the, the credits outtakes reels of him <laughs> saying filthy, filthy things after filthy things. Yeah. Looks like he's going to enter the Holy of Holies and call Edith uninterrupted. Looks like Chuck's taking the old log to the beaver. Yeah, looks like Chuck's taking the skin boat to Tuna Town. Looks like Chuck's. Taking a ride in the wild baloney pony. I I just looked him up on Wikipedia and they say he won several Emmys, was the first male actor to win the Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actor twice. Wow. Nominated for two Academy Awards. He won he got those two Saturns in a war. God bless it. Good for Burgess Meredith. What a life. What a career. Fantastic. What a guy. What a guy. Was one of the Oscar his Oscar nominations for Rocky and the other one I assume is something like it's not like the sand pebbles, but it's like one of those something type like that, movies, right? Right. I think so. I gotta, I gotta look him up. Okay, so uh, he um, was nominated for Rocky. He was nominated uh, two years in a row for for Rocky in seventy six and in nineteen seventy five for the Day of the Locust. Oh, Interesting. okay. Which I've never seen, but apparently no, he's in it. Um, Today, yeah. one million percent, he would win an Oscar for Rocky because mm-hmm. all of the su- the supporting actor trend now is 
lovable old guy. Lovable like, grandpa, lovable dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. I guarantee you, you would never guess the two times he won a Saturn Award. Because I know, I would not have guessed. I do not associate Burgess Meredith with a rich history of being in sci-fi, fantasy, and horror films. I mean, if it's not for, like, the Batman uh, mm. uh, Penguin uh, back no, then, which no. I imagine there were not Saturn Awards back then. Um, no. Uh, I have no. no idea what they would be. He won for Magic, the the creepy the Anthony Hopkins movie. movie. Yeah. yeah, and he won for Clash of the Titans, which like I knew he was in. But oh, I right. Have been like, yeah. Cool. Wow, yeah. that's fantastic. <laughs> I, you know, Perseus, you gotta go back to Earth and get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Uh, can I tell you my favorite of the Pequod crew, though? Of all of them, mm-hmm. is um. Stub, who seems like the he's the 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 captain of the grunts, essentially, um, who has his fun little Tam O'Shanter hat throughout the entire thing that somehow <laughs> never gets blown off by like a typhoon or you know rough seas or anything like that. It is just a kicky little hat, and every single time Ahab yells something down to him, he's just like, the men are trying to process your latest orders, sir. It's just like, everything is just sort of like, we're kind of thrown for a loop by this thing you just said. Um, uh, That's that's probably my favorite guy. I love that guy. Good for him. A A thing that, like, I think this movie misses about the novel that is probably impossible to do in a two-hour movie is this sense of living on the ship and these people as different characters and getting to know them mm-hmm. and the community of this ship. And honestly, like that's hard for any any cinematic adaptation of something like this to do because mm-hmm. there's something inherent to spending that much time with characters on the page mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, even like a 10 hour miniseries would, would struggle with that said, like, um, you know, I, I think that a two hour movie does not do, uh, does not do the, the best does disservice. That's what I'm looking for. does disservice to these supporting characters yeah. who in the book are so rich and vivid. And in the movie are reduced to, yeah, he has a little hat and he, yells things and yeah. you're like okay got it you got if it. you read the book you can like read all of him on the page onto him but yeah he's so fun he yeah. is a fun performance yeah um i i'm curious to know in terms of a book versus film thing mm-hmm. does is the starbuck character changed much from the book to the movie because the the moments where starbuck feels like he is important to the narrative a little bit like Queequeg sort of like kind of come and go where all of a sudden it's just like, Oh, now's the part where Starbuck is conflicted about the, you know, the quest that we're on. And, and, you know, we have a little moment of that. And then by the end, because he becomes, he sort of picks up Ahab's vendetta in the, in the final minutes of the movie, it's meant to be so powerful. And like, I think it is to a point. I think if Starbucks maybe a more consistently central character, but like I don't know if that's not the case in the book. And he is a he is it's it's a fairly similar arc. I yeah. I don't remember everything about the book, but yeah. it is very much like Starbuck is sort of functions as I mean Ishmael's literally the reader insert, but Starbuck is close enough to Ahab to be like the guy who's like, you know, this sounds a little crazy, yeah. my dude. Let's let's just uh tamper it a little bit. Yeah. Um but yeah, it it very much is like the way that um that that attitude infects him and the other people on the ship becomes a core 
principle. One of the problems with adapting this for the screen is that, you know, Ishmael's an interior character. You mm. put him in the movie and he kind of just stands there and watches things happen. Yes. So they've kind of like invented stuff for him to do where mm-hmm. he's present, but it's, 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 I was talking about this with, with, uh, my wife last night, uh, but it's a, the Harry Potter problem where in the books, Harry yeah. Potter is just kind of there. People tell him what to do and he goes to do it. And in the films, that's really not a satisfying character arc. Cause you're right. like, okay. And so I think Ishmael kind of has that issue here, but everybody knows the first line of this book. So you can't get rid of Ishmael at right. all. You right. also need the one guy who survives. Right. Um, but it, the book is sort of loosely structured around these two dyads of of Ishmael Queequeg who's like a more intimate personal dyad and then Starbuck Ahab who are like the two poles of like how we could approach right you know getting our vengeance upon nature right Starbuck is the sort of more responsible sailor yeah and mm-hmm. Ahab's uh lost it um I also yeah. like the scene where it feels like for a second like Starbuck's going to be able to mount something of a successful mutiny among you know the the other care of the other you know people on the ship and then what is it that happens oh it's after the i think it's after the saint almost fire bit right where uh starbuck goes to stub um he's like so about that mutiny we were gonna do and stub's like Eh, you know, uh, Ahab's maybe got something here. Like, did you see the way he, like, uh, calmed that St. Elmo's fire? It was not bad. And it made me think of that tweet that comes around every once in a while, the one where it's like, um, correction from my previous uh, uh, statement uh, about ISIL, you do not, under any circumstances, gotta hand it to him. And, like, <laughs> that's sort of what it made me think about Ahab, where it's just sort of like, eh, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe he's got a point. Um, I don't know, that made me laugh. No, I like what I love about Ahab, both in the movie and in the book, is he's like, he is every guy that's, like, currently running our country and yes. so many countries around the world. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're gonna get our revenge on this whale, and you're like, really? Why is that the thing? Okay, I guess right. we have to get our revenge on this whale, right? And like, you know, Melville's writing this in the build-up to the Civil War, and Melville is, um, from what we know of him, he was a uh, pretty uh, uh, staunch uh, abolitionist type. Mm-hmm. And like, there's you read the the book, the character of Pip who's the black cabin boy is like a more important character in the book. There's a whole meditation on life and death from his point of view that like Ishmael is imagining Pip must have thought about, which is kind of strange, but, um, (laughs) but like, yeah. So he is like, he is sort of writing about the people of his time who are like dragging us into calamity over this, like incredibly inhumane, uh, desire to you know uh, subjugate people and he sort of like pours all of that into this like well why do we keep doing this why do we keep trying to uh, control things that we cannot control yeah. um, and you know I this movie has that in there but this movie is very much like this movie is kind of the classics illustrated version of Moby Dick and the thing that's fun <clears throat> about Moby Dick is it's a big rollicking right. adventure right and you can put that on screen and it's a great time it's yeah. just yeah if you've read the book you're like Oh yeah, there's there's texture missing here, but at the same time, the texture is so specific to the page yeah. that I don't know. The best choice probably just is to make the rollicking adventure version. Right, and it's fun. So. Well, that's the thing that sort of seems to arise with so many of these books, where 
we we can at, we can adapt just the story but the reason why the book is the book is the digressions it is the mm-hmm. you know the sort of uh cul-de-sacs that the author sort of finds uh, themselves in and that's how you end up with this idea of like an unadaptable novel and it's not necessarily that like you couldn't adapt it it's like you can't adapt it in the way that it's going to be as impactful as what people love about the novel because you know and this is also why people run into the trap of like but i could make it as a 10-hour tv show and it's like (laughs) you know um it's so funny not to like take myself down a melville-esque digression but like that whole idea we are so now so despairing of the idea of the tv show that never and you know what i mean that like drags out an adaptation or whatever way too long and that's become sort of like the bane of our existence but like i remember back in the day when like people would talk about i always bring up like the neil gaiman's the sandman and they kept trying to make that as a movie and it kept running into problems and people kept being like i oh oh i wish hbo would just buy it and adapt it as a super long miniseries and that was like the salvation of hope for so many people who wanted these sort of big unwieldy things to be adapted as projects i think in the wake of like something like angels in america where like which is done well which is like miraculously you know done well in the hbo version uh, people were like, yeah, that, do that, but for this book that can't be made into a two-hour movie because it's too unwieldy. And now we are, you know, 20 years hence. And everyone's like, no, put the genie back in the bottle, for God's sake. <laughs> another another of my favorite books is War and Peace. And the only really good cinematic adaptation of that is the 1960s Soviet version that is like, I think, eight and a half hours long. It might be a little, it might be a little under eight. Yeah. But it's just like, it's four in four parts. It's effectively a mini series. Yeah. Um, but it had a huge budget. You know, the Soviet government was like, we're going to give you everything you need to make this movie. Right. Because it, America made a version of it that was apparently not very good. Right. But, um, but yeah, there is something to the idea that these books need sweep and scope, but yeah. you can't just throw it on, on, you know, a television, a tele- like you need somebody with a vision for what it's going to be, yeah. whether that's a really strong showrunner or a really strong director. Yeah. Uh, and too many of these books have just been like, we're just going to do a new war and peace. We're the BBC. You're going to yeah. like it. And it's just, it's, you know, <laughs> who knew fine. that decades well, later, all it would take is a bunch of songs and Josh Groban to make it really sing. And uh, <laughs> well, part of it really, sings. right. 75 pages. Right. Of it really right. Sing. That's the, yeah, that's the my, uh, I got, I got to do this aside, but my biological mother was here recently to, to talk to my child. And, um, uh, the only one who will, the rest of us are just like, Oh gosh, got to get someone else in there. Uh, no, uh, she, yeah, yeah. She was here. Uh, and we were talking about war and peace for some reason. And she was like, didn't they make a new TV series of that? And they looked it up and was like, yes. Yeah. And Paul Dano was in it. And she mm-hmm. looked at me and she nodded and she said, you never know where he's going to turn up. And I was like, that's really true. <laughs> that's Speaking of Paul Dano, um, watching, this is a roundabout speaking of Paul Dano, because uh, Paul Dano was in <laughs> There Will Be Blood. And I found a video clip of Ed Sullivan, of all people, on location, on set in Ireland, talking to John Huston and Gregory Peck about the filming of this mm-hmm. Moby Dick. And every single time 
I see John Huston speak, it is newly surprising to me where I have the thought of like, huh, he sounds like Daniel Plainview a little bit. And it's just like, right, 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 right. That's, that's intentional. Yes. Um, but it's like, it's every single time I'm just like, oh my God, it's so, it's so that. Um, well, I mean, Sierra Madre is so influential for There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Yeah. On multiple levels. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a moment in that interview, though. Uh, Ed Sullivan starts off talking to um, John Huston, and then he uh, pulls Gregory Peck aside, and he just says, "How'd you come to play Ahab?" And Gregory Peck just goes, "John Huston threatened to shoot me if I didn't," um, <laughs> which is an interesting bit of like apocrypha too, because I think later on we've it's it sort of came about that uh, the studio sort of imposed Gregory Peck on Huston, just like if you're going to make this movie, we're going to make you cast. Um, somebody because like the the you know the legacy of this movie is like ah yes gregory peck was so miscast and like peck has even said that in the interim in the in the intervening years or had said that when he was and i think one of his comments was that john houston himself himself should have played peck thought that houston should have played it houston thought his own father walter houston should have played it which is says a lot about a father-son relationship where you're just like, you, you know what, Dad? About, you know what role would be perfect like, for probably. you, Dad? Is Captain Ahab. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I like... What are your feelings on John Huston? Because I was like looking through his filmography. I haven't seen every movie. Yeah, I like John Huston movies. Yes. Like it's like that feels like a non-controversial thing to say. And yet, like, I don't know that people... Think of John Huston at this point in time in the same at the same level as some of his other contemporaries who, you know, John Ford continues to be this like huge figure, Howard Hawks, etc. Yeah. And like people certainly remember John Huston, but very much like for individual projects and not necessarily as and I think it's because he was shall we say a problematic figure? Um, <laughs> he had some issues. He had a so. he had a big he had a he had a lot of personality. I don't know. Chris uh I've probably seen fewer John Huston movies than you have, so... Uh... I mean, I haven't seen them all either. Um, I really have wanted to revisit The Dead, um, and I keep missing it when it was on Criterion Channel, because um, I think I probably saw that movie at the wrong time when I did see it in college. Um, but, I mean, Sierra, Treasure of Sierra Madre is incredible. I only... I think I've seen that for the first time in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like that enough right there is a, a kind of enough to at least instill a creative legacy. Yeah. Um, and like, I think African Queen is fun and kind of corny in a really enjoyable way. African Queen kind of shaded what my expectations for this movie would be because yeah. like they shot on location for that movie and like everybody's getting sick left and right yeah and i was expecting i was like oh okay well john houston shooting moby dick especially after that shoot i'm probably going to be watching people like drown on screen in real life i'm going to watch john houston probably killing these people (laughs) um which is kind of why i was surprised by how at least in the way that the movie is shot there's really cool and inventive shots immediately followed by incredibly corny and hokey looking, you know, mid-century shots. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think there's something about the sensibility of especially big studio movies 
uh, and like studio adaptations of this time of Hollywood history that is, uh, I would say, you know, the things we've been talking about in terms of like the spiritual qualities of the text and the, the, uh, you know, just like the diversions and the almost philosophical things that Melville was doing that. I just think in the studio system was just absolutely not uh, the sensibility of that kind of filmmaking was never going to capture those things. Yeah. But I do think that Houston gets them in there in, in small ways, if not, you know, with the depth of like the text does, but you know, the first 15 minutes of this movie is basically a religious diversion, you know, kind of setting this, the stage through this whole church service basically in a way that i think even a movie today wouldn't include that sequence you know it would move past it um so i guess in terms of like houston's voice in this movie i don't know i do see i feel like there's as much of as a movie could be made at that time there is a distinctive stamp on it um, yeah. versus like some of, you know, his peers at this time, because like, this is also the era of like big studio movies of like Anne of a thousand days where it's like, these <laughs> things could not be right. more boring. Whereas I think this is kind of a yeah. counterpoint to a lot of the movies it might get lumped with. Of the yeah. John Huston movies that I've seen, I'm sort of looking through taking a quick perusal of his filmography. Um I still do need to see Treasure this year, Madre. I feel like that's the big sort of like uh um hole in my uh in my John Huston. Oh still Pritzi's honor. I've never seen Pritzi's honor. Um I don't love that movie. Uh I think I'd I'd like to see it just to, you know, just to see it. But uh Maltese Falcon I saw for the first time recently. It's nothing like what I expected. It's I was expecting this sort of uh kind of, you know, this thrilling detective story like putting the case together and it's just it's so many just scenes in rooms of Bogart, you know, getting getting the truth out of, you know, slimy weaselly characters or whatever. It's a fascinating <laughs> movie but like definitely nothing that I thought um was going to of his sort of um, kind of island movies, right? Key Largo feels like the one everybody likes better. I really love Night of the Iguana, which is kind of the less um, well-regarded one, perhaps mostly because of Ava Gardner, who I think is just tremendous in that movie. I love her so much um, in that one. That's one of the ones I have to see, and I'm surprised I haven't seen it. Check it out. It's it's like... it's, it's Richard Burton, uh, Deborah Carr are sort of like the focus of it, but like Ava Gardner's like you know, the cool island lady. I love her. Where she's just like, I'm just going to, like, operate my little shack on the island, and this is fine. Um, So, he's... The thing about Houston, though, Emily, the, 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 you know, the more personal aspects of him is, reading through even just the stuff about Moby Dick in his, you know, the stuff you can read about him online, is every little... Uh, story about people he interacted with is punctuated with in the book that they wrote about their time working with John Houston. <laughs> X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. says, like, this man might have set the record for, like, being such an ordeal to work with that he inspired people to write books about it. Like, Catherine Hepburn wrote a book about the making of the African Queen. The cinematographer on, on Moby Dick wrote a book about that. 
Uh, and then I think the most applicable, and maybe we can pivot to this, is Ray Bradbury wrote like 12 different things about the experience <laughs> of working with John Huston specifically on Moby Dick because it was so um, contentious and and difficult, which um, I imagine John Huston was used to sort of running roughshod over screenwriters and Ray Bradbury, who was already a success in his own right at this point was like, well, no. And so yeah. there was a uh, contention. He's, um, he's a success, but he's not yet Ray Bradbury. Right. It's, he's mm-hmm. in that like weird penumbra zone where he's written a bunch of stuff that people love. But, you know, I always grew up with Ray Bradbury, American icon. And like at the time he was just in the very early days of his, his iconic status. So yeah. it is, but yeah, he like, Ray Bradbury was also a very, um, he was not John Huston levels of cantankerous and hard to work with and stubborn and right. piece of shit, but he was very stubborn and yeah. he was like, I'm going to have it this way. It was always shocking to me that these two men wrote this movie because it's, it's yeah. I love, I love a lot of Houston movies. Um, I especially love late period Houston. His last film, the dead was on criterion for a while. And I watched it is beautiful. Uh, everybody should have it in their Christmas movie marathon. Um, but yeah, John Huston, um, is, is just, a a nightmare. And yeah, <laughs> isn't that Clint Eastwood movie kind of about him? White Hunter, Black Heart. I think is it's that... supposed to be. Yes. I've never know. seen that movie, but I think I, I haven't heard either. that. Yes. Yeah. 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 I so feel like, like, uh, the, the things that I hear the, or at least the things that I've internalized about him being somewhat of a monster comes through the lens of angelica houston talking about him because it seems like a lot of people are like so your dad was a monster would you like to elaborate on that (laughs) and because she gives some of the best quotes in the business it's always kind of somewhat deflecting um or at least the ones that i've kind of internalized um but yeah, the one that I made note of uh, is the cinematographer Oswald Morris, who's the cinematographer on uh, on Moby Dick. the The book that he wrote is actually called Houston. We have a problem, which <laughs> it feels like a, one of those like a thousand monkeys on a thousand typewriters. Like eventually, somebody would have come up with uh, sure. Houston. We have a problem for uh, that. It's perfect. I love it. Um, I- yeah. I kind of miss when, like, there were people who were so notorious that you could sell a book just be, by being like, I knew this person. Right, right, like, right. <laughs> what a terror. <laughs> um, the Angelica Houston thing, though, Chris, that you mentioned is definitely real, where she'll talk about, like, they'll, they'll ask her, because she became, like, very good friends with Gregory Peck sort of uh, later on. And so she would always talk about, like, oh, Gregory and my dad, you know, they were great together. And it's like, and in real life, it was this thing where like, they just like had a rift after the movie that like never got repaired. And at one point, <laughs> Peck apparently like approached John Houston to like reconcile and Houston was like, fuck this. No. And, and just never, they never made up uh, before Houston died. So, um, it's one of those things where with enough distance, you can sort of look back and be like, at what point can I just be like, that guy was a character, you know what I mean? <laughs> Versus, <laughs> you know, that guy is a problem who needs to be dealt with or whatever. Um, it's sometimes nice to have that distance where it's just like, well, there's nothing to be done about it now. So now we can just sort of, you know, watch the movies and, and you know, yeah. enjoy yeah. at least that. Yeah, I 
I always struggle with how to do this because obviously we li- we've lived through this era of like a real reckoning with yeah. people who are making movies or making television who are with us right now. But then, you know, you, you look back at people who made art across millennia and they were terrible people. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I find it hard to watch movies Harvey Weinstein produced. Sure. And he was less of a presence on his movies than John Huston was. I'm not saying... Yeah. Their levels of badness are equivalent at all. Harvey yeah. Weinstein went to prison. But like it is definitely, you know, everything I the first thing I knew about John Houston was that he was a director who uh made his stars' lives a living hell and made everyone who worked for him a living hell. Yeah. And um and yet I'm like, I like his movies because yeah. he died before right. I was cognizant of right. him. You know? <laughs> well, it's that to me, it's I always think of it as the sort of the Woody Allen Roman Polanski problem where mm-hmm. I feel like I can watch Roman Polanski movies because by and large he's not in them. He I know he's in some of them, but he is not in most of them. And so I can watch them and sort of like, you know, compartmentalize my mind and and take myself out of a space. And it's harder to do that with a Woody Allen movie because he's always just right fucking there that whole time. And it's just like, well, yeah. okay. Um, the, that's, that's how we're going to play it. That's, how we're going to play it. And, and there we go. But yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and Houston like is in a lot of his movies, but always in like a weird place. Sure. You know, he's never like mm-hmm. actually like playing, um, one of the central characters. He's always like off to the side somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I'm looking up his acting credits now because I'm. I think the thing because him. he played such a monster in Chinatown, also that like it allows you to sort of envision this monstrous version of John Huston and sort of slot that in to then these stories you hear because mm-hmm. he's sort of put that version of himself on celluloid and now it exists out there in the imagination. My favorite is that. He, in his movie, The Bible in the Beginning, which is a terrible film and almost, I haven't seen everything he made, but almost certainly the worst thing he ever made. Uh, he plays Noah slash God slash narrator. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> there is a scene in which Noah talks to God and it's just Sean Houston talking, talking to himself. himself. And you're like, this is kind of his ideal on screen. <laughs> it would be ideal, especially ideal if John Houston talks to God voiced by John Houston and then the narrator has something to say in that scene. The narrator also voiced by John Houston. Yeah. The Kaufman, Charlie Kaufman-esque layers of that would be divine. Speaking of I, narrators, um, reading about the other 1956 Oscar movies, I think it's Around the World in 80 Days, where they said uh, it was the prologue was narrated by Edward R. Murrow, which yeah. feels like another reason why I really want to see Around the World in 80 Days. Just like such a just shameless spectacle of a movie. I can't. I kind of. Uh, can't begrudge it that yeah it's uh around the world in 80 days is such a, a weird movie it did, but like the fact that it invented the cameo and like it was like cr- like everyone was like well it won because every actor in hollywood was in it was in it and, yeah it's not a bad strategy true. it's kind of true <laughs> actually the war and i i was looking through the this year's oscars and the war and peace that i alluded to earlier is uh, this one is the king Vidor that, one yeah, and okay. it was nominated. He was nominated for best director. He gave a um, quote that I read where he was like, he was talking about, um, I think he was talking about George Stevens and Giant, who George Stevens wins best director for Giant. I mm-hmm. probably would have also given best picture of the ones that I've seen. I Hell think yeah. Giant yeah. 
is tremendous. Um, but King Vidor had this quote where he's like, oh man, like I kind of wish George Stevens would make giant next year so that I could win an Oscar for War and Peace this year. Like, that'd be nice. Um, the other thing that I learned is reading about the 1956 Oscars is that Ingrid Bergman, who wins the Oscar for Anastasia, had been like drummed out of Hollywood because she had an affair with Roberto Rossellini and conceived a child out of wedlock. And, uh, you know, the, the cluck cluckers in Hollywood and had a hopper and all that, whatever, like ran her out of town for a decade or whatever, which I had no idea about. Like, it's so yeah. weird. Mm-hmm. To think about like these Hollywood stars, who... Rossellini's talked about it too, and the effect that that had, like the emotional effect that it had had on. Her I imagine too. so. Like Jesus Christ, for some reason I don't know why I'd never heard that story, but I'd never heard that story, and it's it's yeah. a fascinating one. I like my my Oscar um, my Oscar history. Like I would go to the library and check out books on the Oscars, and there was a whole section on Ingrid Bergman winning for Anastasia because it was such a like watershed moment. This is like a weird year for the Oscars uh, dealing with recent controversies because Mm -hmm. it's also the year Dalton Trumbo wins. Although at the time he was not known as like, it was under some pseudonym I don't remember. And eventually it was, but people knew it was Dalton Trumbo. So it's kind of like the first cracks in the blacklist in terms of how the industry responds to it. Yes. Um, And I do wonder if, if the, if Houston and this movie did not receive any nominations because he was outspoken against HUAC and communism simultaneously. And so he was like, fuck that. I'm moving to Ireland. Yeah. And that was like the early fifties preceding this. And yeah. his Oscar, his Oscar run kind of went off a cliff after that. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that was like, yeah. he was already a person who had enemies. And I wonder if that played into, Oh, he's, you know, he's essentially telling all of Hollywood to go fuck itself with, yeah. with that statement. So that was the other thing I wanted to mention when we were talking about Houston is the John Houston parts of five came back. The, uh, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. um, the Mark Harris book turned Netflix series, which of all the things, you know, we can say about Netflix being bad, that series was really well done. Um, yeah. and the Houston parts so of that good. are really interesting. And, um, but yeah, a fascinating Oscar year. The other thing that I read was that uh, Jack Lemmon had won the Oscar in supporting actor for Mr. Roberts the year before. Um, mm-hmm. And that was somewhat controversial because he was a leading man winning for a supporting performance. And mm-hmm. there was a real sense back then that the supporting categories, even beyond like a uh, uh, type like or, or like screen time we're like these are categ- these are not categories for the actors who we have designated as leading men and so the next yeah. year this year 1956 when uh robert stack for written on the wind and um uh don murray who is the male lead of bus stop opposite marilyn monroe and there was one other person um Oh, Mickey Rooney for The Bold and the Brave. Like, all of these were, uh, in one way or another, leading roles or leading men, in in the case of Mickey Rooney, all decided, well, if Jack Lemmon did it, we're going to do it too. And it essentially, like, this is the year that popularized category fraud at the Oscars, (laughs) which is kind of amazing. Like, uh, in the same year, the cameo and and category fraud at the Oscars were introduced. Like, it's it's wild. That's great. Yeah. I, I love that there's a, you can pinpoint yeah. the year of, of category. Yes. Fraud. Yes. Um, I'm looking, 
I'm looking through these nominations and like, I was thinking about this watching Moby Dick because I didn't, I don't know that it's a great film. I don't know that it's one of the best John Huston films I've seen. I don't know that it's one of the best films of its year, but you look at the actual nominees for best picture and like, I love 10 commandments. You can't have, again, you can't have grown up in the United States and yeah. not love it a little bit, but I went and saw it in the theater a couple of years ago and boy, Cecil B. DeMille just plunks down his camera and just like sure. shoots it at some actors and yeah. says, here you go. Have yeah. a great time. Um, the thing that and, I love is that when he does that, the actors are like, all right, like crack their knuckles <laughs> and just like, here we fucking go. And so I at least appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was watching Moby Dick and I was like, whatever you think of this movie, there is, there is intent behind all of these shots. Even the ones mm-hmm. that again are like kind of cheesy and yeah. chintzy. Yeah. Um, and you know, there is a real attempt to like grapple with this book and grapple with, you know, how the the prospect of making a Moby Dick movie and having a giant whale that kind of just kind of just looks like a like a barrel that occasionally <laughs> pops up out of the water. Yep. In a floating a, piece of styrofoam. Yeah, yep. In yep. a good way, but yeah. Yeah. Um uh my uh, I was my friend who was asking me how the movie was, he works in VFX and so like I was showing him some of the photos of the the props. And he was just like, that's so cool. Cause like, you know, he's interested in the history of visual effects. And like, this sure. is an important history of visual sure. effects movie. Sure. As is mm-hmm. Ten Commandments. Sure. It's just like, yeah, there's this, there's the fifties at the Oscars are, I think my least favorite decade. There yeah. certainly are some good movies that won at that period, but like the best stuff that Hollywood was making is often relegated to movies that aren't even nominated or they're often like, Often other categories, like the Cirque movie Written on the Wind, which is fantastic, is mm-hmm. is has nominated a bunch of places this year, but not, you know, not really uh, right. uh, a big player. Um, and then The Bad Seed, which is, I don't know that it's a great film, but it's a lot of fun. I um, watched it for the first time a few weeks ago, and it is a lot better than I was expecting it to be. It yeah. is a lot of fun. Eileen Heckard, especially. I talked about this. What podcast were we on where we were talking about? Oh, it was on 100 we Snubs. We were talking about it on this. We were talking our about podcast. it for 100 right. Snubs. Um, Eileen Heckert is doing some A plus drunk acting in that movie. It's really fun. Yeah. And that movie got two supporting actress nominations. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, this is the year the Red Balloon wins original screenplay, but also like La Strada is nominated there. It's like yep. this is a period in time when everything is changing, but the Oscars are kind of not acknowledging that. Yeah. And so I'm very frustrated by that divide. And of course that becomes more pronounced in the early sixties when they're just like giving it to every big musical that comes along, including of course my fair lady, the Goonies of its time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean like there as much as this movie, like even in the way we shot, even though the way that it's shot, even though we watched it on like a shitty transfer on freebie, like it, <laughs> as much as it feels like, you know cinematic book mold at times Mm -hmm. there's there i thought that there was really as as like crusty as some of it can feel and it can feel like something you're watching on a 60 millimeter print like the apple dumpling gang in an elementary school (laughs) there's also like stuff that felt really form pushing to me like there's a shot in the final sequence where you're inside moby dick's mouth for like two seconds and then it cuts to some bad acting of drowning but then there's the visual effects shots of like moby dick flipping kind of Mm -hmm. in the air and i don't know i it it does feel a little bit like the movie as much as you know it got shit on for gregory peck who i actually think is fine uh it feels like it 
is along the lines of what you're describing, Emily, of like it's more forward thinking than it maybe appears on the surface. So it might not have been appreciated for those things at the time. And like the thing, first of all, we need to see Gregory Peck and Orson Welles in an apple dumpling gang. Like sequel. <laughs> let's resurrect them both. Let's make it happen. It's a um, weird pull, but like that's the type of thing you watch on yeah. like a ancient VHS in an elementary school, yeah. right? Um, this is what yeah. that felt like yeah. to me. Uh, I do like. I think one of the things that any adaptation of Moby Dick has to contend with is that you have to create this giant whale, and in theory, like using computers to do it now would make it much easier. But I think you have to have a tactility to that whale. You have to feel mm. like that whale is going to come out and, and bite somebody's leg off in a way that like i think is not uh really as possible with like even the best computer effects it's tricky to do that sort mm-hmm, of tactility yeah. uh, i want to see christopher nolan's moby dick because i do feel like i literally that had problem. that thought watching yeah. this of like i'm surprised nolan hasn't attempted to do a moby dick because it feels like yeah. the kind of Mon- monomaniacal sort of you know story that's telling its own story kind of a thing uh, I, I mean it. we're a few years removed uh, lest we forget from Ron Howard's version of Moby Dick oh I saw that in the heart of the sea I sure saw that the, based on Melville's inspiration for yeah. whatever everybody figured it was a Moby Dick movie there's, and no one saw it there's a whole section in uh, Moby Dick the book where Ahab they talk about Ahab's I think dead wife so Nolan's got the in there uh-huh <laughs> there we go um but I think I, you know, uh, I re- I read somewhere that this was like re-released after the success of Jaws, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, you can see in the way that Houston shoots around the whale, like so- mm-hmm. some of how Spielberg approaches shooting Jaws. And for Spielberg, that was out of necessity. And I don't know how much it was for Houston. But like when you see the whale, it looks fake, but it looks fake in that good movie way. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. that, that's a really cool. I, I just love this, this kind of shit. Yeah. I love old visual effects. Yeah. Here's a question I had as literally as we're talking about this. The Rankin-Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special. The Yukon Cornelius character, when he goes after the abominable uh, snow monster and they go over the cliff together, that's a conscious Moby Dick homage or am I crazy? I think so. Yes. Because isn't the whole thing where he's just like obsessed with the bumble and he's got a, you know catch it or maybe he's obsessed with no he wants silver and gold he doesn't he's afraid of the the bumble i don't it's know kind of, it kind of makes sense to get just the way that like gregory peck as ahab sort of like goes riding off into the sunset down into the deep on the back of moby dick i'm like oh okay i get it yukon cornelius and the bumble okay all right understand that yeah <laughs> i can process my, culture my favorite thing about my, my favorite extra thing about the book moby dick is that basically the ending of this plays out the same way in the book. And the last 50 pages of this book are just some of the most terrifying, beautiful stuff you'll ever read. And then at the end of it, Ishmael's like floating away from the wreckage and the ship is going down and the mast is going down. And this bird that's been bothering them for like 200 pages, that's like a death omen is flying overhead and somebody's hand reaches out of the, the water, grabs the bird, pulls it down to the mast and nails it to the mast. Oh, somehow. wow. While drowning, so the bird has to die with them, and like it's symbolism of like the way that you kill the thing that you're trying to like yeah. capture, but and then also kill yourself in the process. But it's so funny, it's oh, wow. so extra, it's so much like <laughs> when I die, I want to nail a bird to something in the process. <laughs> 
I like in the in the movie the narration at the end as like this ship that Ahab had spurned um is the one that comes and rescues Ishmael, this ship where Moby Dick had killed the captain's son and or had taken the captain's son, and the captain is like, Hey Ahab, surely you as a good person will help me go and search for my son. And Ahab in this sort of moment that, you know, reveals exactly what he's all about is like, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to go try and kill that thing on my own because, you know, this isn't about uh, people. This is about my obsession and sorry about it. And the other captain sort of whatever promises, essentially just like God will take care of you or something like that. Um, Yeah. It feels of course, very poetic. And I felt so bad because all I could think of as this like ship is coming upon them, I'm like, oh, it'd be like too bad if it's too bad it's not this like I don't know like gay party boat or something like that that comes along and <laughs> rescues Ishmael to to continue your metaphor about Ishmael and uh, Queequeg's romantic life together. Uh, genuinely, I was going to say that one of the like one of the few like elements of the book's queer subtext that survives to the film is that he sur- he escapes on Queequeg's floating coffin. Yes. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. Melville himself was probably gay. Um, and uh, so like there is this element of him writing about what it is to be in a relationship with another man at a time when like that's very much underground or it is happening on whaling ships but people are like basically well that of course that happens on a whaling ship but it better not happen right on the mainland and all this stuff. Right. And then you know Living because your lover has died is like this thing that in queer spaces recurs. And yeah. It recurs in queer art all the time. Um, and so that is one of the things that uh, survives here. And so, uh, yes, Queequeg's Coffin is the original gay party boat. There so. we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the, uh, the Pequod uh, capsized in Puerto Vallarta. Um. <laughs> Um, should we go around for final thoughts before we move into, uh, the IMDb game? Yeah. Um, I guess my final thought, since we didn't talk a ton about Gregory Peck, he had already had four nominations at this point, all in lead actor, which I think, you know, a few years removed from this, when To Kill a Mockingbird happens, Considering what the role is and how iconic uh, Gregory Peck's performance eventually becomes, that feels like maybe the most inevitable Oscar win of all time in terms of these, like, what we would now call career Oscars, i.e. people who have, you know, a sizable amount of nominations or have had a sizable career and never won an Oscar. Yeah. this makes him, I think, the second Academy president we have ever talked about on this uh, podcast, the first of which you did not say dick poop on national television first thing in the morning. Um, we got to do a Carl Malden movie at some point. Um, oh, I love Carl Malden. This year, uh, uh, he was in that movie um, Baby Doll, which is a Tennessee Williams adaptation and is sleazy. Highly controversial. Yeah, it is a sleazy movie. 1950s sleazy, but sleazy nonetheless. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, uh, yeah. No. I, I. Have you read the book Oscar Wars that came out? Yes, I have. Chris has. The, I have. There's a lot of Gregory yet. Peck in. There's that a book. lot of great Gregory Peck stories in that. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> Even after he's a president, like there's, uh, there's 
callback to uh, Gregory Peck's term as the Academy president in the chapter about the Alan Carr Oscars because Gregory Peck, who like previously had been uh, seen somewhat as uh, left-leaning and forward-thinking, was one of the people who condemned Alan Carr's Oscars, I believe. Um, My favorite story about Gregory Peck as Academy president is how he sort of unilaterally made the decision to uh, invite Barbara Streisand into the Academy before Funny Girl, which was her screen debut, was even released. And people were like, why don't we wait until she's actually in a movie before we... And he's like, no, no, it's going to be a big deal. Uh, And sort of uh, spearheads that, pushing it through. And of course that Best Actress decision was a tie. So had Barbara Streisand not presumably voted for herself, she would have lost uh, Best Actress. So Gregory Peck quite literally uh, engineered the Best Actress tie of 1968, which is... Thanks, Gregory. Fantastic work uh, all around. Speaking of Ingrid Bergman, uh, one of the great Ingrid Bergman moments of all time. All right. I do... Uh, obviously, the most famous Gregory Peck part is Atticus Finch, and I do think one of the reasons To Kill a Mockingbird is not as frequently read as a white savior narrative as it probably should be is because Gregory Peck plays Atticus Finch. And if ever mm-hmm. there has been a better match of like character and actor, I don't know of one. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, you just get, it's in, it's inevitable because at the time he was like overdue for an Oscar, yeah, and then mm-hmm. he wins, and it's just it's like Leo in The Revenant, except uh, Gregory Peck didn't kill a bear or whatever right that we know of. that we know of. yeah yeah all right i suppose we should move on to the game portion yeah joe would you like to explain the imdb game yeah why don't i um every week we end our episodes with the imdb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress and try and guess the top four titles that imdb says they are most known for if any of those titles are television voice only performance or non-acting credits we mentioned that up front after two wrong guesses uh we will give the remaining titles release years as a clue and if that is not enough it just becomes a free for all of hints that is the IMDb game. Sure is. Okay, so Emily, as our guest, you get to choose uh, whether you would like to give or guess first, and also what direction you want to give in. So say you want to give first, you get to choose whether you're giving to me or to Joe. Um, I would, I think I'd love to give first. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm going to give to you, Joe. Uh, I looked on your list of people, the big list, and I did not see this name, but if you've done him before, let me know. Ahab in 1998 was played by Patrick Stewart. I don't so think we've done Patrick Stewart. This is I a good would one. love to hear your Patrick Stewart uh, picks. And honestly, uh, I think these may be very boring, but we're going to find out because I just looked up. <laughs> Any television. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's one television. Okay, so Star Trek The Next Generation has got to be the television. There you go. You got, right. it. You I got, got it. I got it. Okay. <laughs> um, the first X-Men movie? No. See, this is where it's going to become a challenge. Is the X-Men's versus the Star Treks. I feel like of the TNG cast Star Trek movies, the one that I've seen at least a few times is First Contact. So I'm going to say Star Trek First Contact. That's on there. All right. Okay. X-Men 2. No. All right. Okay. So what years? All right, 1998 and okay. 2017. 2017 is Logan? Yep. Okay. 98, 
And the Moby Dick remake was a TV movie, It was a right? TV series, okay. so it's not that. Okay. Yeah. 98, Patrick Stewart. Is it maybe another of the Star Treks? I feel like one of them was 99, though, so it wouldn't have been 98. Patrick Stewart. I think he's the bad guy in Conspiracy Theory, but that's 96. Yeah. I'm just going to guess and say Star Trek Nemesis. No, but very close. All right. Star- Nemesis, I think, is 2000, because Nemesis, I believe, is the one with Tom Hardy. Okay, so Generations is is earlier than 98. Yes. And I already got First Contact, so there's a fourth one. It and is. It's- I, I will say it is truly bonkers this movie is in his fourth. Like I, uh, uh, even if you're just if you were just picking four times he's played Picard, I would not put this in the four. Okay, I'm oh, all right. So generations first contract first contact first contract is also an interesting Star Trek story. <laughs> Star Trek first contract. That's that's about uh, Starfleet's contract <laughs> negotiation. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 collective bargaining with the uh, with the association of uh, of. The engineers go yeah, on strike. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, Neme- Nemesis is the one about the Borg. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that one's two thousand two. Like the I will. Right. This movie almost kills Star Trek as a theatrical oh experience, my God. and then Nemesis actually does for quite a while. Re- rescues it. Okay. Yeah. Now Nemesis actually like is is a huge flop, and then they have to, the next one is the. Um, J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Right. It's, it's seven years later, and it's like, we have to reboot everything. I know this title lurks in my brain. It's um, Insurrection? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. It's Star good Trek you got there, because my next hint was going to be about a very unfortunate <laughs> Yeah, Star Trek January 6th. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's three Picards and a, and a Professor and an, an Xavier. Xavier. Okay. And listen, the I only c- Professor X being Logan is so unfortunate to me personally. Yeah, the I'm, fact the fact that um, emoji movie in which he plays the poop right emoji isn't in there. Is <laughs> really, yeah, no, I like I love him in Logan. I think he's he's really great in that movie. But yeah, like I I, I he's so good in that role and. Yeah. It is a little unfortunate. He has a wonderful career. It is a little unfortunate. It gets boiled down to those two franchise parts. But yeah. Like also, what do you expect? Yeah. Right. Right. He is above the title in Dune, in uh, David Lynch's Dune. So that is, uh, that's good. Oh, yeah. All right. Chris, for you. Yes. Uh, we, I talked a bunch about uh, Ingrid Bergman talking about the 1956 Oscars. So I thought, why not just uh, give you Ingrid Bergman for the, for the IMDb game? This is the first time we've done this in years, but we can't do Ingrid Bergman because I you picked Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman. Bergman. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay, so you can still we'll save it. I will give I will give Ingrid Bergman to to Emily, Emily but I will choose someone so else for you. you. You'll get a, you'll get a few minutes to do on that. So there was somebody else I was going to do, and then it has turned out to be hard. But maybe you'll do better than I've I been expected. mean to you the past. That's few true. Weeks. You can be mean to me today. Okay. Uh, so another uh, Oscar nominee from 1956 his only nomination and watching uh the hbo documentary about him 
really bummed me out that it was his only nomination because he I really know. is fantastic in this movie. Uh, Rock Hudson. This this documentary is a lot of fun. I love not the Rock just Hudson for documentary. I thought it was the confession well of one of Rock's former lovers, but um, uh, I do think Giant is on there. Yes, Giant. Pillow Talk. Pillow Talk, yes. You got the two easy um, ones. Now they're two hard ones. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, that makes me feel like the Cirques aren't there. I will. Um, s- well, no, I'm not going to give you hints yet, but uh, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll just say Magnificent Obsession then. No, not Magnificent Obsession. Okay. Um, maybe it's another Doris Day movie? Or is it what's that uh, i didn't particularly love this movie i think it's called grass is greener not grass is greener okay so maybe that's not the title your hints for years are 1961 and 1966 so for context pillow talk is 59 so 61 and 66 okay yeah this is past most of what i would have Guess. One of these is mentioned in the Rock Hudson documentary in a way that really made me be like, I would like to see this movie because it seems fascinating. Because it's gay, right? Kind of atypical. Subtextually gay. Subtextually no. gay, yes. Uh, but also, like, genre-y in a way that you would not expect from Rock Hudson. It's an action movie, right? It's a sci-fi sort of quasi-horror-like thing. Oh, Here's a big hint. I, I I watched this last year. Oh, so what did you think of it? That's a hint. I I actually I really liked it. There was um a job uh, my wife and I were up for. They were thinking about making this a TV show. I don't oh, know fantastic! If they but they had a, they had a room for it, and they were like, there should probably be a trans person in that room. But I in the end, I wasn't the trans person in that room. But uh, there should be a trans person in that room. It it, it it so. it absolutely seems very intriguing. Uh, directed by John Frankenheimer. Oh, um, oh my God, it's right there. I'm going to need more hints. You can think about the title when you're having, um, more of your dinner. Uh, if you have, if you've been served dinner and you're like, that was so good, I could go back for seconds seconds yes, seconds seconds it's my fa- it's my favorite kind of title where it's a terrible title yes. until you've seen the movie and you're like oh that's a clever title oh which is like interesting. The worst. yeah it's oh fantastic like the worst kind because it's you know it the premises you get the second chance at life basically yeah so. yeah i want to see it. it 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 looks really fascinating all right the other movie not um doris day but another person who is name checked in a uh, Grease song about um, Sandra D. Yes, um, I actually don't think I've seen any Sandra D. movies. Um, I'm guessing this is the '61, yep. and Seconds was the '66. Yep. So it's going to be relatively close to Pillow Talk in terms of age. What was he in with Sandra D.? She's actually third build to an Italian actress. This movie is set in Italy. And it's not Sophia Loren. Nope. Didn't think so. The actress's name is Gina Lolo Brigida. That doesn't help. Um, I may not get this one. Okay. Um, hold on. What else about this movie? Um, 
Bobby Darren is in it. Hudson in Italy. Is this a war set movie? Like, is this is he like in the navy? If he is, I can't tell by the description. It's uh, it seems to be a romance about uh, young folks and older folks. I haven't seen a Rock Hudson Italy movie. I it's the movie that Bobby Darren won the most promising newcomer at the Golden Globe for. Um, (laughs) uh, It's got a month of the year in the title. Okay, Uh, April. No, I think you don't know this. September. Yes, September. I've never heard of this. It's called Come September. I've never heard of it either. It's bizarre that it's in his notes. Truly, never heard of that movie. Same. Okay. I'm. The plot summary on Wikipedia includes the phrase, and finally, the current guests of the hotel, air quotes around that, are a group of young American girls trying to fend off a gang of oversexed boys, laid, led by Tony, who are laying siege at the outer walls of the villa. Wow. Sounds great. Joel Sounds Gray great. is in this movie in a small role. Um, Deleted White Lotus subplot. Uh, um, <laughs> honestly, uh, yeah. All right. I have never heard of that movie. All right. Um, I hate that I had to essentially give up on Rock Hudson, though. I know, I know. All right. Well, anyway. All right. Well, that brings us to the final round. And with our guest, Emily, for you, as we mentioned, we have Ingrid Bergman. Hell yeah. Okay. I'm going to do the gimme first. Uh, Casablanca, I'm guessing. Correct. In there. Um, Is Anastasia in there? No. Her Oscar win. Well, one of her Oscar wins. Not there. Yeah, that's... um, she didn't win for Gaslight, but I'm going to guess it's in Gaslight, correct. Did she win for Gaslight? Um, No, because I think she only has... No, she does have three. Maybe she did win for Gaslight. Hold on. Hold, please. She did win for Gaslight, yes. Wow, good for her. Good work, Ingrid. I, when I, I didn't remember her as having three. She has three. Yes, she does. When I was an old movie obsessed kid, Ingrid Bergman was like, I thought she was the most beautiful woman who'd ever lived. And you know what? I think that was a good call. You were not wrong. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So I'm going to just do her other Oscar then. Murder on the Orient Express. Incorrect. So you're going to get your years. Okay. Uh, 1945 and 1946. That might help you get it. Oh, yeah. This, these, these must be as one of them. Oh, notorious. Notorious, yep. my favorite right. Ingrid Bergman yeah. performance. That's 46. Yeah. Um, is the other one Suspicion? No, but you're getting there. Oh, God. Uh, is she in Lifeboat? Uh, she might be, but that's not the correct, not answer. The correct answer. So I'm assuming it's another Hitchcock. Yes. Correct. Okay. Fuck. I, like, this is the thing. Is like I will, I will be so mad if I don't get it, but also like uh, one word title or two. One more time. One more time. Okay. God damn it. The problem is all those titles are like notorious. Yeah. Suspicion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, g- give me another hint. Uh, this one, this is a pretty, even when I watched this movie, I was like, this is a weird Hitchcock movie. Um, it's uh, got hypnosis plots. Oh, God. Yeah, this is, is one hypnosis? I, this is one of the ones I haven't seen, but I've read about it. It shares a title with a sort of recent, not too recent, documentary about kids who are really good at one kind of thing. Oh. It also, her co-star is an actor we've talked about a lot this episode. Oh, oh yeah. Is, is it Peck? 
Yes. It's Peck. Oh, wow. God. Yeah, I've, th- I've definitely never seen this. Uh, Hitchcock, Peck, Berkman, movie about kids who are really good at a thing. <laughs> yeah, like, what are, like, the kind of things, like, if you're, like... Spellbound. Yeah, Spellbound. there you go. <laughs> Spellbound is a weird movie. You should Such definitely see movie. it. I've Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've seen The Doc. So I'll I I, I, hope, say I was gonna that. say I hope that my dumb clue helped you out at least a little it bit. It did, so. it did. <laughs> I enjoyed the doc. I don't remember anything about it. I should see this. I've seen I've seen I love forties Hitchcock. I can't believe I haven't seen it. So I love I fucking adore Notorious. So I love that yeah. we're all walking yeah, away from this uh, this podcast episode with movies that we want to watch. It's always a it always feels as like a success when we do that. So yeah. Who was it that you were saying Joe does good drunk acting earlier in this episode? Eileen Huckert my... in The Bad Seed. <laughs> uh, Bergman in Notorious is like my favorite drunk actor. Oh, fantastic. Ever. ever. Fantastic. She's so good. Um, I'm sure she does it elegantly. Very elegantly. She, she does incredibly well that person who is way drunker than they think they are, but they're still trying to keep it together. Nice. I love it. it. It's exquisite. It. Uh, Emily, thank you thank so much you, for Emily. joining us. I'm this was so a complete glad. pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. I had a great time. Um, I'd love to come back and discuss any number of things. I realized I don't actually think that The Shining had Oscar buzz, but y'all should do it anyway because it feels like it <laughs> should have. Honestly, we'll take it. That sounds yeah. fun. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I had a great time too. And uh, thank you so much for having me on. I've been wanting to do it for for so long. Oh, it's yeah, our pleasure. 100 years, 100 snubs was a great delight in our household. Oh, I'm glad Aww. you liked it. We love hearing that. Yeah. Well, it was our pleasure. Yeah, my, wife, my, my wife is also Oscar obsessed. Hi, Libby. An, an awards writer for The Rap. So, uh, yeah, she's uh, she and I are, are both Oscar nuts. So Fantastic. Enjoying and listening to this show. Thank you so much is what I'm trying to say. All right. Thank you. Well, that's our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check us out on Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Also follow us on Twitter if it still exists at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at thishadoscarbuzz. And please also join us on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash thishadoscarbuzz. Emily, tell our lovely listeners where they can find more of you. I am uh, Emily St. Jams on basically all platforms that matter, uh, including the currently dying uh, Twitter and Blue Sky. I do most of my my socials on blue sky now so um but yeah and if anybody needs an invite code i've got them so <laughs> all right joe where can the listeners find more of you uh twitter and letterboxd at joe reed reed spelled r-e-i-d and i am on twitter and letterboxd at chris v file that's f-e-i-l we'd like to thank kyle cummings for his fantastic artwork david dallas and gavin mevius for their technical guidance and taylor cole for our new theme music please remember to rate like and review us on spotify apple Podcasts, google play stitcher wherever else you get those podcasts five star review in particular really helps us out with apple Podcasts visibility so yo 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 ho ho uh a new review shall be our <laughs> Uh, great fantastic Uh, that's all for this week we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz oh bye bye